I am always, always, always thrilled. It's a particular joy to me to be able to bring the Word of God to us. And so, let's get into it this morning. And I, I want to start by asking this. How many of us understand that there's a distinction in our lives between what happens to us and how we perceive what happens to us. You see that distinction, right? Isn't it true that two people can have the exact same experience but have two totally different reactions? Some of you are dog fans, I know, and, and, and I'm not. Don't hold it against me. I just didn't get that gene or something. But I do have friends... I do. I have friends who love dogs. And uh, a while back, one of my friends and I were going to visit a family together, and this particular family had some dogs. And uh, when they invited us in, their dogs did what dogs are prone to do when guests show up. They came bounding down the stairs, jumped up on our pant legs, started you know, clawing on our pant legs and sniffing us and licking our fingertips. And I'm there, I'm trying to be uh, patient and pastoral, while fending off this assault, I look over at my friend, and to my horror, he's enjoying the whole experience. I mean, he's actually liking the dogs licking his fingers, and then he bends down, and, he, and the dogs lick him right in the face. And I'm thinking, that's it, we can't be friends anymore, you know. I, I can't be seen with the likes of, of you, you know, if you're going to do that kind of stuff. Just kidding. Two people, same experience. Polar opposite reactions. Why is that? What, what makes that difference? And I would suggest that the difference is, well, insanity in his case, but generally speaking, the difference is perspective, how we see life. Obviously, there are more serious examples. Two people are told they have cancer, or two people are notified that their position at work is being eliminated. One is devastated, sullen, angry with God, and begins to sink into depression. But the other somehow astonishes people with their ability to absorb the hit and move through it with grace and look for opportunities to turn it into good. Many of you know my wife, Shirley. She is a lovely, lovely lady, and we've been married for 30 years now. She's actually our, our church's uh, interim nursery coordinator right now. So she comes on Saturday nights and worships in here, and now she's back there right now. But some of you might know that Shirley was born with a congenital birth defect that left her without any thigh bone and a foot where her knee would have typically been. When she was nine years old, that foot had to be amputated. During her teenage years, when most girls are skipping and running and dancing and cheerleading and stuff like that, she had three additional surgeries and ended up spending two entire summers in the hospital. She's had to wear a prosthetic device since she was just a very little girl. Now, I've known Shirley for 20 years, and I would say this, not once have I ever heard the woman complain or whine about her condition and I would know because I live with her. Now, she does some complaining about other things, okay? But, <laughs> and she wanted me to tell you, she's not perfect. She knows that. But she has not ever once whined or complained about her severe limitations in life. Ever since I've known her, she's always had a joyful, optimistic outlook on life. And she loves to serve other people. And if you know her, you know that about her. 
When I first met Shirley, she told me that the reason she could be so positive was that she had come to believe that God had made her in a special way for the purpose of shining for His glory. And if you know Shirley, you know she shines for His glory. I will say that. She was saddled with a disability that she didn't cause, that she didn't ask for, but I'm constantly amazed that her outlook is so incredibly optimistic. Every Friday morning, I'm off on Friday, so we have our Friday morning routine. We grab our cups of coffee, we go down into our living room, we sit in our little rocking chairs, and we catch up from the week and talk with each other, and we pray together. And every Friday morning, I hear her pray, thank you, Lord, for another day to be alive. Thank you for the gift of life. Now, Shirley has known some other individuals throughout the years who have had similar disabilities, but not very many of them share her positive outlook. What's the difference? What's the difference? Again, I would suggest to you that it's perspective. It's perspective. So to illustrate that, I like to use a set of glasses. And you know I've done this before. A set of lenses. The last one I had had lit up. You remember that? So this is the one they gave me this week. So, pretty cool, huh? These are like Coke bottle lenses on these things. But my point is that everyone perceives what happens in their lives through a set of lenses. And that set of lenses that you see life through determines a lot about you. It determines things like your outlook, your mood, your relationships, the opportunities you'll have in life. It it determines a lot about your future. And it especially determines how you react and respond to hardship, to difficulty, to trials, to adversity. Well, we're walking through Paul's letter to the Philippians here at the front end of 2014. And and what we're seeing in this letter is the perspective of a man who wore what I like to call gospel-tinted lenses. He made a habit of that. It was a routine with him. And in the passage we're looking at today, how Paul viewed the hardships in his life comes through loud and clear. And so take your study guide out of your worship folder and listen as I read Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, Paul's perspective on his imprisonment. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else, and I'm in chains for who? For Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here, I'm on assignment is what he's saying, for the defense of the gospel. Now verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing, you might want to circle that phrase, we'll come back to it. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. In a situation that would likely drain the joy out of most of us, this man, Paul, truly had a unique perspective. Wouldn't you agree with that? Since he wore gospel glasses as a matter of routine in his life, 
His perspective on being in prison was tinged with optimism and faith and, yes, even joy. Viewing his situation through those lenses brought into clear focus for him the good that God wanted to accomplish through his circumstances. And as a result, he was able to capitalize on the situation for the greater cause. Now, this is not a new concept to us. We're familiar with these axioms in life. When life hands you lemons, do what? Make lemonade, right? Turn your obstacles into opportunities. Turn your adversity into advancement. We've, we've heard these things before, and obviously Paul was doing that. But we need to see where the desire and the ability to do that came from. So let's discover how that kind of perspective started to show up in Paul's thinking. The first thing I want to talk about is Paul's adversity. His adversity. It says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Kind of begs the question, well, what happened to him? (laughs) What's he talking about? So let's back up and ask that question. You can actually read about it in Acts chapters 21 through 28. But let me give you the highlights of what had happened to Paul. For many years during his ministry, Paul had wanted to take the gospel to Rome. I want to get to Rome. I want to go to Rome. Rome was kind of the citadel of paganism in that day. Kind of like my friend Dave who wanted to go to Las Vegas to start a church. Sin City. Paul had that same mindset. I want want to get to Rome. That's where the action is. That was the political center of that empire in that day. And it eventually did happen, but not in the way that Paul probably would have preferred You say, how did it happen? Well, after his third missionary journey, Paul had returned back to the city of Jerusalem. And while he's there, there was an angry mob of Jews who didn't care much for Paul. And one day, they just kind of surrounded Paul and accused him of speaking words against God and against the law of God and against their temple. And they were really riled up to the point where they threatened his life. Well, Paul had some friends, he had some supporters in Jerusalem, and they were concerned for his safety, so what they did is they whisked him away to the local jail cell, and they had him committed there, not as punishment, but as protective custody, you understand what I'm talking about? To keep him safe from the angry mob. Well, Israel was an occupied territory at the time, the Romans occupied Israel, and the Roman authorities locally there didn't know what to do with Paul, they were There wasn't any really substantive charge against him, but they were afraid to release him because of the hostile crowd. They knew that Paul was a Roman citizen and he had rights. And they didn't want to just like turn him over and let the crowd do with him what they would. What happened was he was given a couple of hearings before some local Roman governors. One's name was Festus and the other's name was Felix. So a couple more names to add to your preferred uh, names for children. Then he was given an audience with Herod. But nothing really got decided in his case. He was like this hot potato. They didn't know what to do with him. They were passing him around to each other. We're not sure what to do. What happened was he basically um, languished in a prison for two years. What he decided to do was to appeal his case. And we're familiar with the appeal process in the legal system, right? Well, if you're a Roman citizen, you could actually appeal your case all the way to Rome, to Caesar. So that's what he decided to do. And in his mind, he's thinking, that's how I'm going to get to Rome, I'm going to appeal my case. And so his request was granted, and he was dispatched on a ship to Rome. Well, you might, have, might be familiar with what happened. Uh, the ship encountered a violent 
storm. And it ended up running aground and starting to come apart, and Paul ended up having to swim for his life to reach the shore. Well, through God's providential protection, he finally did arrive in Rome. It appears that once he got there, he was given like a preliminary hearing where he could present his case. And of course, as he presented his case, he also proclaimed the very gospel message that he was on trial for preaching. His proclamation that Jesus of Nazareth is the risen Lord to whom all must bow their knee probably agitated the authorities there, brought consternation to them because in the Roman Empire, Caesar believed that he was Lord and he did not tolerate any rivals. He demanded total allegiance. So again, while in Rome, he was placed under house arrest where he awaited the outcome, the final verdict on his case. He knew that he would either be released and he could go back and start resuming his ministry or he would be executed for capital offenses against the state. And in Philippians, we see him kind of playing out these scenarios in his mind. What happens if this occurs? What happens if this occurs? Two more years passed in confinement while he was waiting for the emperor Nero to make up his mind about his case. Now his imprisonment, which is when he wrote Philippians, had some interesting features to it. He was not placed in a common prison along with a lot of other criminals. Acts 28 tells us that he was confined in a private home, a a private residence, where he could receive visitors. And he received a lot of visitors over the course of those two years. People would come and he would teach them about the gospel and others would leave and come in. But his freedom to move about like he had been accustomed to was taken away. Something else that was taken away was his privacy. Why? Because he was literally chained to a Roman guard. Think about that. Several times in the first chapter of Philippians, he uses the word chains. And these were not metaphorical chains. These were real chains. The Greek word is halusis. It refers to a chain about 18 inches in length where one end was fastened to his wrist and the other end would be fastened to the wrist of a Roman guard. Think about that now. 18 inches, no privacy. Every little common routine activity of the day had a companion with it. Escape, of course, was impossible. And it was the Roman custom for the guards to switch off every six hours. So in the course of a day, he would have been chained to four different guards, shift after shift after shift, every day for two years. Now, would you call that an ideal situation? We would probably call that adversity, right? Hardship, unpleasant circumstances. And I wonder, if you had been in Paul's shoes, how would you have reacted to that confinement? Would you have perhaps wondered if maybe God was done with you? Would you, would you have thought, you know, it seems like God is removing his hand of blessing from me and my ministry. Maybe my ministry is over. Maybe you would have thought that God was punishing you for something that you had done. Or maybe you would have been mad at God. I mean, think about that. Think about Paul. Okay, God, I'm down here preaching your gospel, and now you're putting me here? (laughs) That wasn't really his perspective, though, was it? He wrote some letters from prison, one of them to the church at Philippi. 
you know, the Philippian church loved Paul, and somehow word had gotten back to them of his predicament. And so they wanted to encourage him. They, they loved him. Their relationship bond was strong, and so they sent this man Epaphroditus to bring him a financial gift and to encourage him, but also to find out what was going on with Paul and to bring word back to them. And so Paul writes, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have resulted in the advance of the gospel. And the idea is, is kind of like, um, despite what you might have thought, me being now, you know, out of commission, you might have thought that the gospel would have been stalled out, no more progress, and basically saying, no, 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 no. Actually, the gospel is still advancing. Paul's adversity had somehow been used by God for the gospel's advancement. I want to talk about that for a moment. Because, in effect, what Paul was saying, the gospel here in Rome, believe it or not, is actually spreading. You might have thought that with me sidelined that that the mission would have been impaired, but not so. As he would write later, I am being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. It's not bound. So how? How was the gospel advancing and progressing while Paul was confined in prison? Well, three ways we see here, and he mentions them. First is the convincing witness of some guards who had gotten saved, who had been converted. And he talks here about the palace guard. Did you see that? The palace guard. And history gives us some insight into this very elite military force. They were a hand-picked group of military troops who ended up becoming Caesar's own personal bodyguards. Kind of a mixture of secret service, Delta Force, and UFC. Okay? So strong, courageous, sharp, intelligent, brutal, ruthless young men. Young guys who were chosen to protect the emperor, his household, his interests, and were also assigned to protect Roman citizens who had appealed their case to Caesar. They're often referred to as the Imperial Guard, and at this time there was about 16,000 of these guys, 16,000. Their term of service was 12 years, and if they served well during that time, they were given special commissions after that as public officials or as ambassadors to other nations. One scholar wrote this, As a group, they were the movers and shakers of the future. They were the opinion leaders, the kingmakers of the next generation. They were a powerful and strategic group of young men. If you wanted to influence the Roman Empire, you could not pick a better group to start with. And Paul said, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, the imperial guard, and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So can you picture what happened? Not only was Paul chained to a new guard every six hours, but they were chained to him. Can you think about what a distressing situation that would have been for a pagan Roman soldier to be chained to this raging evangelist for Jesus Christ? There was no escape, but for him, talk about having a captive audience for his message. (laughs) What do you think Paul talked about with those guys? Do you think that one of them ever asked Paul, so hey Paul, why are you here anyway? What crime did you commit to warrant you being put in prison? And Paul would have said, well, 
I guess my crime was preaching the gospel of Jesus. At which point they probably would have said, well, what's the gospel? And Paul would have said, oh man, I never thought you'd ask. <laughs> the gospel is the good news that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Jews, is actually the God of the entire world. And he has come from heaven to earth in the form of his son, the chosen one, Jesus of Nazareth. God has come to earth. He lived over in Israel for 33 years. He lived a perfect, righteous, and holy life. And then he was executed by your guy, Pilate, over there. You ever heard of him? At the request of the Jews. But he died not for any crimes of his own. Gluteus Maximus, or whatever the guy's name was. He died for not any any sins of his own, any crimes of his own. He died for the sins of the world. Paul would have said he died for my sins and for your sins. And the good news of the gospel is that because of his death and then his resurrection three days later, that anyone and everyone who repents can be forgiven and made holy and dwell with God forever. You think Paul ever shared that message with those guards? I know he did. (laughs) There is no doubt in my mind that over and over and over, Day after day, week after week, he was sharing the message of the love of God through Jesus for all of mankind. The 19th century commentator F.B. Meyer envisioned how it might have played out. He wrote this, At times, the hired room would have been thronged with people, people to whom the apostles spoke the very words of life. After the crowds would withdraw, the sentry would sit behind, uh, beside him, filled with many questions as to the meaning of the words which this strange prisoner spoke. At other times, when everyone had gone, and especially at night, when the moonlight shone on the distant slopes of Seracti, soldier and apostle would be left to talk, and in those dark, lonely hours, the apostle would tell soldier after soldier after soldier the story of his own proud career in early life, of his opposition to Christ at first, of his ultimate conversion on the Damascus Road. And he would make it clear that he was there as a prisoner, not for any crime, but because he he believed that he whom the Roman soldiers had crucified was the Son of God and the Savior of men. As these tidings spread and the soldiers talked them over with one another, the whole guard would become influenced in sympathy with the meek and gentle apostle who always showed himself so kindly to these men. Can you see how Paul, with his gospel lenses on, his gospel glasses, saw his unpleasant situation as an occasion for preaching and teaching the message that he loved so dearly. Now, some of the guards, as I said, apparently ended up believing and getting saved. You say, how do you know that? Well, we know that because at the end of the letter, Paul signs off the letter to the Philippians by saying, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Say, well, how did that happen? Well, apparently, some of these guards who were chained to him after hearing the message trusted Jesus. Then when they got off their shift, they would go back and tell the other guards about this Jesus that they had received. Some of them served in the palace, and they apparently found opportunities to share the gospel with some of Caesar's family, and some of them believed and got saved. The gospel advancing. So Paul was in chains But the gospel that Paul loved was not in chains. In fact, there was a 
chain reaction. <laughs> and he was praising God for that. It wasn't being snuffed out or squelched. He said it was advancing, and that's a very interesting word. The gospel is advancing. William Barclay says that word was used to refer to the advance of an army against its foe. So it was progress against opposition. In our context, we might say that the gospel ball got moved upfield and gained yardage against a defense that was set in preventing that very thing. So the gospel was advancing. But it was advancing also in another way. Not only was God using Paul's adversity to win some of the Roman guard, the imperial guard to himself, but the gospel was also advancing through the emboldened witness of Christians living in Rome who heard about Paul's situation and became inspired to step up. So that's the second way the gospel was advancing, the emboldened witness of inspired local believers. Now this can happen, right? How many of you know someone in your life who has inspired you because they're such a bold witness for their faith, for Christ? Can I see your hands? Yeah. And you know what? Instead of, letting, instead of being um, like intimidated by that, like, oh, I could never be like that. What if you let that inspire you to get in the game yourself? Let's say you're a public school teacher. If you, as a Christian in a public school, find creative ways to share Christ, is it possible that some other Christian teachers might hear about that and be inspired to do the same thing themselves? That it would kind of become like wildfire, contagious. Or let's say you work in an office and you decide, you feel prompted by God to start up like a lunchtime Bible study for your coworkers. It's very possible that some Christian, maybe in another department, might hear about that and say, well, if, if Joe can do that or if Mary can do that, I can do that too. So that your example is inspiring them. Or let's say you're a student at high school and you decide that you and your buddies are going to host like a prayer gathering early in the morning at your high school or a, a Bible study after school or something like that. And you might find that Christian students from other schools hear about that and say, well, <laughs> if those guys can do it, we can do that too. You can have a powerful, indirect witness through other Christians stepping up when they see or hear about your boldness for Christ. That's what happened with Paul. Instead of letting prison life get him down and all mopey and whiny and shut him up, what did he do? He capitalized on the situation. And then other people who heard about it said, well, man, if, Christ, or if, if Paul can be a bold witness for Christ in prison, I'm a free person. I ought to be able to do that as well or better than him, right? Kind of like when... Braxton Miller went down with an injury and Kenny Guyton went in and delivered the goods for a few games while Braxton was out of commission. I mean, Kenny pretty much did it, didn't he? The Christians in Rome, believers in Rome, got wind that the great apostle was now sidelined and they realized that they needed to step into the vacuum and become bolder witnesses for Christ. Perhaps they later heard that instead of Paul going on the DL permanently, he'd actually upped his game in prison, and that added even more incentive to them. Look what that guy's doing in prison. And they were inspired to boldly speak of their faith 
in Jesus. Interesting, I found out about this. Something very similar to this is happening in our world right now in the unfolding story of the Iranian pastor, Saeed Abedini. Have you been following this story at all? This guy converted from Islam to Christianity back in 2000, and he got infected with the real deal. He was married to his wife, Nagma, and together they started to pray that God would use them as a couple to reach 50 million Iranians with the gospel. Well, they started a bunch of house churches in Iran during a, an era where the, the political climate was a little more open. But after Ahmadinejad came in, he started to clamp down. They had to leave, came back to the States, made several visits back over the years, and I think it was in 2009, he actually got imprisoned. And he's imprisoned to this day. But while in prison, he's led 30 Muslims to Jesus while in prison. And here's what's happening. His wife, who's, who's not in prison, who's free, is turning into this raging evangelist. <laughs> Nagma. You can look her up on, on YouTube. Go online. She got a chance to speak to the UN, and she's telling them that Jesus is the only way to God. She got a chance to speak on, on a broadcast that got beamed into Iran where 50 million listeners could hear her tell her story of com coming converted to Jesus Christ. I saw a YouTube clip when she was at Liberty University last fall telling her story of how God was using her to spread the gospel to millions of people inspired by her husband's faithful devotion to Christ in prison in Iran. Wow. What a story. Check it out online. It really mirrors the story that we're talking about right here. Emboldened by the dedication and sacrifice of another. Well, back to Paul. Sadly, Paul notes that in his situation, not all of these Christians were boldly proclaiming Christ for the right reasons. He concedes that some of them were doing it from impure Motives. William Barclay writes, There were those who started to preach harder now that Paul was in prison, for his imprisonment seemed to present them with a heaven-sent opportunity to advance their own influence and prestige while lessening his. Kind of like the backup quarterback looking into the camera after a solid performance and saying, I think it's my time now. The starter had his season in the spotlight. I'm the man now. This is my chance to shine. Thankfully, Kenny Guyton didn't have that attitude, did he? But Paul says these fellows did. They were out there preaching, he says, out of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition, and were hoping to stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. It's not that they were preaching a false gospel. It's that their motives were tainted. I would call them opportunists. They were taking advantage of Paul's incarceration by, by jumping in and trying to claim a share of the Christian spotlight in Rome. It's our time now. Paul's on the sidelines. They wanted to make a name for themselves by discrediting Paul and tarnishing his reputation. So how do they go about doing this? Well, Paul doesn't really tell us, does he? Must not have been that big of a deal to him. But we can speculate. It's not much of a stretch for me to think that these guys were tweeting things like, well, apparently God has removed his hand of blessing from the great apostle, seeing that he's been in prison for so long. Or maybe, pray for Paul. 
He's obviously got some secret sin in his life that God is judging him for, and that explains why God has put him on the shelf. Or maybe Paul is certainly not living that triumphant, victorious Christian life he's always talking about. Poor guy, he can't even put his own teachings into practice, practice to get himself out of this jam. Well, I don't know if all that got back to Paul or not, but, but don't you think hearing those kinds of things would have been kind of hurtful? Paul knew his heart. He knew why he was in prison. He knew that he was seeking to proclaim the gospel even in prison. But he was being maliciously maligned. I wonder how many believers have been dinged by friendly fire over the years. Has that ever happened to you? Sadly, sometimes it's Christians who are the most guilty of shooting their own wounded That really needs to stop, doesn't it? Yes, there were some good-hearted, sincere brothers there in Rome who were emboldened to step up in Paul's absence and proclaim Christ more boldly. But there are also these, these detractors, these rivals, who were trying to compete with Paul. They saw themselves in competition for the spotlight, proclaiming the right message, but doing it in such a way as to try to draw some of Paul's followers away to enlarge their own following. But you know, here's what's interesting to me. Paul just didn't get too worked up about it. I think I would have. What did rile Paul up was when people preached a different gospel. I mean, that got him flat out fired up. But these fellows apparently spoke the right message just with the wrong motive, selfish ambition. So amazingly, Paul, with his gospel-tinted lenses on, just saw it as one more way that God was advancing his gospel. The tainted witness of self-promoting opportunists. Look at verse 18 again. I love this. It reveals Paul's heart and his perspective. He says, what does it matter? Translated, no biggie. (laughs) The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached And because of this, I rejoice. Amazing. No thought of himself, no thought of trying to salvage his reputation in the community, no getting all defensive and trying to clear up his name with the Christian community there in Rome, no lashing out, just joyful elation that the message was continuing to spread. How do you get there? You see, it's not only what happened to Paul, but what happened through Paul that mattered, and even more important was what happened in Paul. Everybody look at me. Let me say this to you. It's not so important in your life what happens to you. Lots of things are going to happen to you in life. What's more important is what happens through you, and what dictates that is what happens in you. You say, well, what happened in Paul that allowed him to see this situation like he did? Well, the advancement of the gospel had become more important to him than his personal freedom. Isn't that obvious? I'm confined, but the gospel's going forward. Praise God. The spread of Christ's message had become more important to him than his personal reputation, and as a result, his joy in Christ had become unassailable. You could not cause this man to sink deep into the pit of despair. 
It wasn't about his circumstances. It wasn't about what happened to him. It was about what God was doing through him, through what was happening to him. And the reason is because God had already done something in him. Does that make any sense? Here was a man who was consumed with the advance, not of his own cause or reputation, but the gospel. Problems? Simply opportunities to share the gospel. Hardship? Nothing like what his Savior endured. Shipwreck? Well, that's just cause to look around and see who I can save. Confinement? Kind of inconvenient, but I'm going to write some letters to my supporters. Chains? Just a means of tethering some people to Jesus. Detractors? No need to defend myself. God will vindicate me in the end. Opportunists who saw his demise as an occasion to steal the spotlight. Hey, as long as they're preaching Jesus, I'm okay with it. How do you get there? I'm not there. Are you there? I am not there. How do you get there? How do you get to that mature place of thinking where you view life through those kinds of lenses? How can you cultivate the kind of mindset that rejoices in hardship instead of whining? Answer? Come back next week and Pastor Claude will explain it. And I'm only half joking. There's something in that little phrase that we'll talk about next week. For me, to live is Christ. Consumed. Single-minded. Well, I do want to say this to all of us. If you're not there yet, welcome to the club. Don't be distraught. Don't be distraught. The gospel is for you too, not just for stubbled, grizzled, smelly Roman guards, but for Christians, for followers of Jesus who hear Paul's testimony and go, I'm not anywhere near that. I am so grateful that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins of being ashamed of him, of not speaking words for him when they should, be, should have been spoken. I'm so glad that Jesus died for my whining and complaining and moping I'm so glad that Jesus died for my sins and gave me his righteousness so that God sees me as righteous as Jesus despite my sins. I didn't want to preach this message today and have all of you kind of slink out of here with your tail between your legs thinking, not only do I not measure up to Jesus, I don't even measure up to Paul. (laughs) Look, none of us do. That's why we need to preach This same gospel that Paul preached to ourselves every day, day in and day out. We are righteous in Christ. We are righteous in Jesus. He took our sins. He gave us his righteousness. No, we're not this mature yet. We don't have this mindset yet. God is working in us, isn't he? Through his spirit to put these lenses on us. And some days we do. Some days we have these lenses on, right? And we see life the way that God sees it. Some days we do and we get a glimpse of a glimpse of hope and say, yes, God is in me, he's working in me, but we will never perfectly live this, this side of heaven. That's why we need Jesus to save us and keep saving us. Does that make sense? So be not disheartened today, church. The gospel is for you. You know, there are so many applications for us in this passage we've studied today. I'm just trusting the Holy Spirit to design, custom design, 
an application for you and you and you and you and you and you and you. (laughs) But I do think there are four that are for all of us. Let me briefly finish with these, that we would take these to heart. First, think about this. God has placed you where you are so that you might somehow find ways to share the gospel with the people around you. One pastor said, you may not like your job or your school or your neighborhood or your marriage, but God has you chained up to some people who need to know Christ. Have you ever stopped to ponder the fact that God placed you in your school so that you might share Jesus? Have you realized that God gave you a particular job at a particular company in order for you to share Christ with your boss and your co-workers? Are you cognizant of the fact that God directed you to buy a house in a particular neighborhood with neighbors all around you who need to hear about his son? There are no mistakes or coincidences. God has a plan, and he intends to advance his kingdom through you. That's a word for all of us today, right? He has you where you are for a reason, and that reason, among other things, is to advance the gospel, to share the love of Jesus with people who might not have ever seen it before. Second, instead of whining about hardship, how many whiners here today? You know, I asked this last night, and like four people raised their hand. I said, well, we don't have a lot of whiners, but we've got a lot of liars. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of whining and complaining about hardship, train yourself to look for how, might, how God might want to use it to advance his gospel. One man wrote, adversity will come to you sooner or later. Unfortunately, you're not given a choice about most of the things that happen to you, such is life this side of heaven. But be sure that opportunity knocks whenever you experience a tragedy. Thus, you must train yourself to see every tragedy as a divine opportunity to advance the gospel. One day you may lose a child, yet God can use that tragedy to open doors for the good news of Christ. Your spouse may leave you one day for somebody else, but God may use your loss for his gain. On a smaller scale, you may get cut from the team or fail to get into the college you want to attend, yet God may open new doors to reach others with his gospel. The question is not, is what's happening to me fair? It is this, is what's happening to me accomplishing something for God? But we're stuck on fair in our entitlement culture, aren't we? It's not fair. And God is saying, forget about fair. Life is not fair. Open your eyes and look for how I might want to use you in the midst of your unfair circumstances. One man said, you can have your best witness in the worst of times. It's true. Dawn in the hospital this week, we're praying over her, and she said, you know what? I'm laid up here in the hospital, but when the nurses come in, it's almost like they're chained. (laughs) She's like, I've... I speak of my faith in Jesus to them. It's beautiful. Number three, this is a good one for me. Instead of being all upset that others aren't doing everything right, translated the way I would do it, (laughs) realize that God's kingdom is big and he's using lots of imperfect people to spread his message. That's good, isn't it? And number four, let the example of bold brothers and sisters inspire you Let it inspire you to elevate your own passion to be a strong witness for Jesus. 
those people you know who are out there doing it. Well, good stuff, amen? Let's stand together in response. Our worship team's going to come, prayer partners. As you think about this this morning, several things come to mind. Some of you perhaps just need Jesus. You might say, I, I need Jesus in my life like that guy Paul had Jesus in his life. I would encourage you to come and talk with one of our prayer partners and just say, how can I know Christ? And they would love to guide you into that. How many of you would say, I really do want to see life through gospel-tinted lenses. I, I need that more in my life. Can I see your hands? Ask God for it. I think that's a good gift he would want to give, give you. Some of you perhaps have been mad at God because of what has happened to you. It seems unfair, and you're like, you've had this posture towards God. And maybe, maybe God's touched your heart, and what you need to do is just come and just kneel before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've had my eyes all focused on me. Change my perspective. And then I know that for a number of you, there are people in your lives whom you believe God has called you to be a witness to. Anybody like that? Coworker, neighbor, friend, brother, sister, family member, and I want to invite you at the front end of this new year to come and kneel and pray and ask God for their soul. And as you pray for them, Say, Lord, send someone to them, but use me, right? Use me. Increase my boldness in sharing my faith to you. Would you like to do that? Would you like to just come and kneel and pray for your loved ones today? I think the Lord would be pleased with that. So feel free to come and be prayed with by our prayer partners. Come and kneel and pray. Stand and worship the Lord. Let's respond to him together.